0: Um, I'm so thankful that we did that last song because um, uh, that last song is going to have significance uh, in the message today. Uh, It is finished uh, once and for all. um, And we'll get that from this message, which is titled, The Promised Messiah. I hope... um, I just wanted to start off by just sharing a little personal testimony. Um, uh, I don't know if you all have, you know, in your in your personal times with the Lord, but if you don't, I'd encourage you to do this because uh, <clears throat> you can, you know, if most of you probably have cell phones now, and you can just get anything you can you can find. Just look up worship music or something, you know, on YouTube or or whatever. App you have to find music And in your private times with the Lord. You can just find some some little um, thing that people put together with a string of worship music, and you can just you know worship the Lord together. You know, between you and Him, and and sing songs to Him, and it really um, it's just really heartwarming. Um, I remember a testimony that David shared one time about in his private times with the Lord of just uh, singing that song, Reckless Love, um, and just using that in this private worship time and and just connecting with the Lord. And um, I've been doing that some this week, and um, I don't know, maybe it's because of my age, but I just think, you know, uh, um, I think when we do that, it just makes us, well, at least it does for me, it makes me think like, you know I'd just as soon be in heaven, you know i mean i don't I don't have any i mean, yes, there's things on the earth and there's people and, and, and that you'd miss, but like why not be in heaven, you know, and why not be in heaven worshiping the lord twenty four seven no more cares of this world, no more tears of this world um and uh but but i was I was laying in bed last night and and God was, and I was thinking, like, why does God not just save us and go, like, okay, well, I'll save you and I'll just bring you to heaven, you know? Well, it's because he's got something for us to do here, you know? And, uh, and so I was thinking <clears throat> that um, as long as we're here, we need to live lives to glorify him, you know, because that's what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do. Through our lives, is, is just bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ? And so you know, each day that we wake up, we just need to have the mindset of, well, I woke up this morning, so I'm not in heaven. So Lord, I guess that uh, what do you want to do to bring glory to me? And it's so I'm so excited to see all of you here this morning because just you being here is bringing glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we listen to his word, then that's gonna bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you sing these songs to him, it brings glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. So um, you're off to a good start on this Sunday. So don't ruin it when the Chiefs game starts. (laughs) (laughs) David, no, (laughs) he's doing a good job. Um, So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to David's Gospel, I mean, (laughs) Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 22. Okay, uh, this will be our launching point for the message this morning, uh, which I said, again, if you're taking notes, is titled The Promised Messiah. And uh, the text we're going to look at here this morning is going to address for us the question, who is Jesus? Um, I would dare say that many or most, if not all of you, have heard a message. um, When you uh, think of a title message called the Promised Messiah, you probably would think of a message where um, someone has gone through many of the verses in the Old Testament, um, Isaiah, uh, Zechariah, all these different verses that point to the babe in the manger, okay? They kind of go from the Old Testament and they come all the way up to Jesus' birth. Um, But I'm gonna do something a little bit different this morning, okay, to point us to the promised Messiah. Rather than look from the past to get to the present, we're gonna start in the present with Jesus himself and look forward to to show that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. So the vantage point we'll be looking at is from Jesus and his disciples demonstrating that Jesus is the promised Messiah, all primarily from one passage in the Old Testament. And um, this is the most quoted passage. um, This is, it's the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. Uh, Does anyone wanna take a guess at what the most quoted Psalm uh, in the New Testament is? That's a good guess. That's a good guess, but no, that's not right. Uh, That's a very good guess. Um, We'll just put that on ice for right now and we'll get to it in a few moments, okay? So if I were to ask any number of random people in the world, who is Jesus, the answer I'd get um, would really be dependent on who I asked, right? Um, The Jewish Talmud says this. Jesus was a man who practiced magic and led Israel astray. That's kind of sad. Islam says Jesus was a prophet. Um, That's interesting that even the Islam, you know, has almost a higher opinion of Jesus than the Jewish people. Um, Mormonism says Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, or we would know him as Satan, the devil. Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus is the created being Michael, whom we would know Michael to be an angel of God. The Masonic Lodge says this We tell the sincere Christian that Jesus of Nazareth was but a man like us. And then the Unitarian Church says Christ was only a man. But the text we will look at this morning will deal with the issue of who is Jesus, and we'll see that it is Jesus himself. Who is initiating the question? So here's the backstory to Matthew 22. Um, uh, it's the final week of Jesus's life. Um, it's the week of the Passover, and if you remember, he he comes into Jerusalem, and uh, there's a multitude of people who are coming in for the Passover feast. A number of number of pilgrims, Jesus being one of them, and his disciples, and uh, he comes in on that on that first day, and he. He overturns the tables of the money changers. Um, and then he's, he's, he's teaching in the temple area. And um, it's now Tuesday, okay? And uh, Tuesday before he's going to be crucified. And the religious leaders are coming up to him in front of the crowds, and they're trying to do one of two things because every time Jesus teaches, he's, he's drawing a crowd. So these religious leaders are trying to, one, they're trying to either discredit him with the people so that the people will not follow him, uh, or two, they want to get him in trouble with the Roman government so that the Roman government will either imprison him or will execute him. So they first ask him, and you can you can catch all this if you read through uh, chapter 22, which we're not gonna read through the whole thing, um, but I'm just giving you the backstory. So first, they're, they're trying to trap him um, with these questions. And they ask him, who gave you this authority to, to be up here in this temple area doing all these things that you're doing. And um, <clears throat> so they so they ask him uh, different questions um, and then Jesus turns the tables on them and asks them a question about the baptism of John, which just befuddles them. So, so he kind of like settles them down for, for a minute. And then they think of another question about taxes. You know, who should we pay taxes to? Again, Jesus being God himself, very wise, gives them a very wise answer, which basically silences them again. And then um, there's some more things that go on, but uh, then you see um, another group asking him about the resurrection and the afterlife. And again, Jesus gives them an answer that sets them straight on that. Uh, But finally, um, this lawyer comes up to him and asks him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And then they are amazed at his answer, is what it says. And not only to this question, but they're amazed at all of his answers. Um, So here's Jesus, right? He knows that they hate him. They're basically grilling him with questions. Um, He knows that they're trying to trap him. So the question that I have really is, how does God feel about people who don't want anything to do with him? How does God feel about people that hate him? How does God feel about people who don't believe in him? And I think there's something that we can be instructed uh, you know, from this passage about that. Um, here's how I believe we can see that Jesus responds to these people. He loves them, and he doesn't give up on them. And even when people don't want any dialogue with him, he continues to have dialogue with them. In fact, the passage that we're going to see, uh, that we're going to look at here, in um, starting with verse 41, is Jesus now initiating a dialogue after they've been grilling him with questions. Now he's going to initiate a dialogue with them. And I think it's just very interesting, um, this passage, because um, this is really—you could almost view this as— um, as he's engaging them almost like one last time, like one last chance for them to open their eyes to see that he is in fact Israel's Messiah uh, because he, he gives them clues that are what really what should be very obvious to them. Um, so how might we have responded in a situation like this? How do, how do we respond when we know that people don't want to have anything to do with us, when we know they don't like us for our beliefs, and when we know that they, don't, that that they might even hate us? I think sometimes we might um, tend to shrink back or tend to just um, escape um, or close ourselves off to people, and yet Jesus doesn't judge them all in this manner. Um, he's able to look beyond the outside, beyond the hard shell of these people. Um, And you'll find in a parallel passage in Mark 12, which is kind of telling the same story here. It doesn't give this uh, here in in Matthew 22, but it says when he's talking to that lawyer, and uh, the lawyer answers about what the greatest commandment is, um, it says in Mark 12 that Jesus knew that this man was not far from the kingdom of God. So Jesus was able to see, see through that, you know, that man had some sincere, sincerity in asking that question to Jesus. It wasn't all just like, I'm trying to trick you, I'm trying to trap you. And I think Jesus knew, you know, there's there's this multitude of people, there's even a bunch of religious leaders that we know later on got saved and became believers. And I think Jesus knew that not just that lawyer. But within that group of religious leaders who were grilling him with questions, some would become fully devoted followers. In that group would have been Nicodemus. In that group would have been Joseph of Arimathea. And um, what's interesting is from my own experience, I remember <clears throat> when I turned to the Lord in college, kind of the group that I, that I ran with down there, um... Uh, they pretty much all rejected me after i um, became a christian and um and and insulted me and made fun of me and things of that nature uh and that was uh that was during my sophomore year um but a lot of a lot of that kind of stuff is you know groupthink you know and and peer pressure of people doing that well by the time i was a senior i remember uh, one time I was studying off in some building, and this one guy, Matt Munner, um, he happened to walk by and see me studying in this room, and uh, he was one of the ringleaders of the guys that kind of taunted me after I became a Christian. <clears throat> and um, he, he came into the room, and, and he uh, said, uh, we were just talking about our finals and stuff, and he said, hey, Andy, would you, would you pray for me? you know, that my finals would go well. Again, he wasn't with all the other guys in the group, you know, the peer pressure. But what's interesting is just that, you know, I would say it's kind of like similar to Jesus' story. This guy would, if I could have seen through, I could have seen that this man was close. You know, I mean, he, he might have been, he might have had a hard shell, but yet he saw, the transformation of my life, and he knew that it was real. Um, so what do we know about God's heart? Um, well, there's two verses that, that reveal to us something about God's heart. In First Timothy 2:4, it says, "He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we know that, that that's His heart. And then we know in 2 Peter 3:9, it says, "The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise." but is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And, um, and so I just think that that's, that's interesting here because Jesus isn't going to shrink back from these, from these people grilling him. He's not going to shrink back because that's his heart. <clears throat> I think that's something that we can learn from this. Um, so Jesus initiates this dialogue, okay? Because it says here in verse 41, 22-41, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Um, so also he meets them on their terms. I think Jesus here is laying the groundwork for these religious leaders who are close to believing. And if they would just hear what he is saying here, he's hoping that that light bulb would turn on uh, and they might come to realize that he is the promised Messiah. So how this dialogue instructs us is that there is not one person in this room that knows Jesus that God didn't first reach out to. And Jesus is, in essence, reaching out to them here, quoting from Psalm 10, which they would have been familiar with in order for them to maybe understand. And we know in 1 John 4, 19, it says, we love because he first loved us. And he is the one initiating love here to these people. Um, So... Um, basically, Jesus is quoting from Psalm 110, which is the, the verse that I was going to—the psalm that is quoted most in the New Testament, okay? That's the answer. Um, but what is Jesus doing here, right? What he's doing is he's doing what Romans 10 says, "'How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed?' And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Right here, Jesus is giving them this last chance. Basically, by quoting Psalm 10, Jesus is is revealing to them who he is and giving them this last chance by preaching to them the good news so that they might hear and believe in him. So now let's, let's just get back to this text and just read it here. Um, verses 41 and 42. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. So just to take a moment for explanation, because we see the name Jesus Christ throughout the New Testament, and it's important that we understand what, what that means and why we have that name. Um, So the word Christ in the New Testament is basically equal to the word Messiah in the Old Testament. It means the anointed one. So you could say Jesus the anointed one or Jesus the Messiah, okay? The Messiah was the deliverer of the Jewish people. He was the anointed one who was to come. And so when you read the name Jesus Christ, it is Jesus the Messiah, okay? Okay. So um, just, you know, because we're talking about the promised Messiah, just when you th- see the word Christ, think Messiah, okay? So Jesus is really saying, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they didn't even have to, they didn't have to look it up. They didn't have to do a Google search. they just right off the bat. He's the son of David. They, they knew it, right? They're, that's what they were taught. They knew the Messiah was going to be the son of David. So they had been... Expecting a Messiah, the Jews had. They had been expecting for centuries that there would be a descendant from one of Israel's greatest kings, David, and that this person, this Messiah, would be a deliverer of the Jewish people, that he would be a great man, a noble man, a wise man, a valiant man, a doer of good for the people, a blessed man, and that the hand of the Lord would be on him, and that he he would be a descendant of David." Um, In other words, he would have the right to the throne of Israel, Um, he would be the king of the Jews, so much so did they understand that, that they said the Messiah would be the son of David, and son of David would be another way of saying the Messiah. Um, So you see this oftentimes in the New Testament. Um, So if you were saying, that's the son of David, it's the same thing as saying, that's the Messiah. Okay? And we're going to look at some verses that kind of show that here in a minute. So they're expecting this Messiah. Um, If you remember, when he comes into Jerusalem, ordinary people are already thinking this could be the Messiah. And uh, if they ever needed to deliver for Israel at that time under the Roman oppression, it was then. So let's look at a few verses um, at what's been happening as ordinary people had encounters with Jesus. Okay? Um, you don't have to turn here i'm just going to read them matthew nine twenty seven and as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, "Have mercy on us, son of David And again, they just insert Messiah, son of David equals messiah. they knew they knew that to mean messiah matthew twelve twenty three and uh, This was after he healed a demon-possessed, blind, and mute man. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? And then Matthew 15, 22, And behold, a Canaanite woman, so this is a woman that wasn't even Jewish, all right, from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. These are just some examples, Um, but now uh, since we're already in Matthew 22, I want us to go over to Matthew 21, and we're going to kind of read a little bit lengthy here. We're going to read 21 verses 1 through 17, okay, Uh, so that we can get a better understanding of what was going on here um, and then how the religious leaders were responding to it. So I'm going to start reading in And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. So they were basically calling him the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So he's doing these miracles as well. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? I mean, they're, they're basically, do you hear that they're calling you Messiah? And Jesus said to them, "Yes, have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise?" And leaving them, he went out to the city of Bethany and lodged there. Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't deny any of that. He didn't deny. He didn't say like, "Oh yeah," said, "No, no, I'm not the Messiah." He didn't deny it, um, and so. Uh, <clears throat> So these are just some examples. Um, So here's the thing. In order to be the Messiah, you had to be a son of David. And and here's what the Jews did. They kept meticulous genealogical records um, in the uh, the temple area. So when people are calling Jesus the son of David, um, it's not like the religious leaders couldn't have looked up his genealogical records. they absolutely could have done that, uh, they, and, and maybe they did. I, I don't know. It doesn't say whether they did or they didn't. But what we do know, what we know from the New Testament, is that in Matthew 1, we have the genealogy of Joseph, and Joseph is a direct descendant in the kingly line from King David. And then in Mary's genealogy in Luke chapter 3, we see that she, too, is a descendant of King David. So really, from both of Jesus' family lines, he is a son of David. So he meets that criteria as well. But while the Jewish people understood that the Messiah would be a good man and a great man and a wise man and a blessed man and a son of David, what they didn't seem to grasp was that he would be the son of God. So Jesus is posing this question, what do you think about the Christ? You know, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. So they kind of got partial credit, right, um, for their answer. But really, Jesus needs them to see the reality that the Messiah is also the son of God. So he asked them a follow-on question from Psalm 110, okay? Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. In other words, it's a prophetic psalm, and David is talking about the Messiah. And this is not a psalm that David just dreamed up himself and and wrote down. This is a psalm where David is speaking in prophetic mode, um, like it says in 2 Peter 1.21 that um, prophets uh, being moved by the Holy Spirit Uh, wrote the words of God. And this is what's happening in Psalm 110 here. Um, So again, in Matthew 22, 43 and 44, it says, okay, they said, the son of David. And then Jesus said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. How many of you have read this before are familiar with this passage, right? How many of you have read this before and you're like, I don't have a clue what that's saying, so I'm just going to, you know, continue reading. <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> I've been there and done that as well. Um, but uh, as I was preparing for this, um, I realized that, you know, if the New Testament quotes this uh, psalm 33 times, then it must be really important. And uh, today is going to be the day that we're going to understand the significance of this passage, and, um, and it, is, it is extremely significant. Uh, so let's look at this, but um, <clears throat> you might want to keep your finger there. But we're going to um, maybe mark Psalm 110. We want, I want to look at it from Psalm, from Psalm 110 because I'll show you something in your Bibles that's probably um, you're not, you won't see it there um, in the quote. Yeah, well, at least in my ESV version, you're not going to see it in Matthew, but you see it in, um, in Psalm 110. Okay, so if you go to Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Um, okay, now one thing that you should be able to notice in Psalm 110 verse 1 is the first Lord there, the Lord is all capital L-O-R-D, all caps. The second Lord is capital L. And little ord, okay. So it's this is two different names, two different words, okay. And um, and you'll see this often in the, in the Old Testament. So now you'll, when you come across this in your Bibles, you'll know what it means. But when you see the word Lord, L O R D, in all caps, it's telling you in Hebrew a certain name for God that it is used, and it's the name Yahweh, okay, or Jehovah, okay. Um, and uh, it's, it's that name that the, Hebrew, that the Jews considered the most highly respected name of God. It was the name that they, um, before they even would write it down, you know, they would wash themselves. Um, so that's the word, the capital L-O-R-D is the word Yahweh or Jehovah. Now the other word Lord, the, the capital L and then little O-R-D, is the Hebrew word Adonai which I'm sure you guys have heard the word Adonai as well. And it's really kind of a title word, okay? What I mean by that is if you're referring to King George, um, the word king, his name is not king. You know, his name is George, but he is the king. He is George the king. So he's King George. Um, So oftentimes when you see this word, the little L-O-R-D, Um, it's translated as the Lord God, okay, or meaning God the King. So what we have happening here is Yahweh is saying to God the King, okay? Now, we know also that God is three persons in one, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So when we read this, we need to understand the context of the verse. So in this case, this is what's happening, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the Father, says to my Lord, Adonai, God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay. Does that make sense so far? Clear as mud, maybe? Um, so now we go back to Matthew 22 and verse 45. Okay. Um, And we got to remember that this is a messianic prophecy and David is talking about one of his descendants here. But when he's talking about one of his descendants by the Holy Spirit, he calls one of his descendants God when he says, the Lord said to my Lord. The Lord said to my descendant, who is Lord, God the King. So then that's why Jesus asked this question. If then David calls him Lord, if then David calls him God the king, how is he his son? Okay, and this is what Jesus is wanting them to get. If the Messiah was David's God, which he was, then the Messiah must be God. And therefore, the Messiah is not just the son of David. He is also the son of God. And that is what Jesus is saying to the teachers on the Temple Mount, and um, I'll show you how I'll show you how they actually got this, but they just wanted to reject it. Okay, they actually did get what he was saying, but they just rejected it. So he's quoting from Psalm one ten to refer to himself, um, but this is actually the thing that got him crucified. But on the other hand, I believe it's also the Scripture that opened the eyes of many to become believers who might have been listening in on this conversation, okay? Um, And I'll go on to explain that as well. Um, Now, also what's significant in this saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That phrase, sit at my right hand, is also extremely significant because the right hand is a place of authority. It's a place of equality. It's a place of power, and it's a place of prominence. And when you go through Scripture, that verse is the basis repeatedly for the identity and the honor and the authority and the equality of Jesus. Um, so in Mark, this is where I was going to share that um, you can see that these religious leaders got what he was saying. Um, and basically, this you can read about this in, in Matthew, but you can also read about it in Mark, and I'm going to... Shared in Mark because it throws in one extra thing, okay, that um, is significant where Jesus actually is claiming who he was. So I'm going to read from Mark 14, 61, 62. This is after they arrested him and had him in front of the religious leaders, okay? Mark 14, 61, and 62. But he rem- Jesus, But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? Okay, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And in Matthew's account, it says, The high priest said, Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Again, Jesus quoting Psalm 110 and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Did they get what he was saying? They, they absolutely got what he was saying, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, Um. You know, there's some people today that that um, that claim that Jesus did not claim deity, or that Jesus is not deity, and it baffles my mind because, they, in my mind, they they have not honestly read or understood the clear teaching of the Gospels and the New Testament because it is it is crystal clear that Jesus claimed deity; he was God; he said he was God; and all those around him understood that he was saying he was God. But in the end, they rejected They rejected his claims. They rejected who he said he was. Um, so finally, in Matthew twenty-two forty-six, 46, so back to Matthew, it says, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Why? Why? Because I think they knew what he was saying. I think they knew what he was saying, but they weren't gonna—they weren't gonna take care of that business right there, in the midst of all those people. They waited till they could get them, you know, arrested, and in front of the high priest, where the, there wasn't that big crowd around. Um, so it's not that they had nothing to say to him. Um, it's because they just wouldn't say anything at that time. So they had the word of God clearly explained to them by the Son of God, by the word of God incarnate. They had seen miracles. You know, it said right there, you know, earlier that he he healed the blind and the lame and they saw the wonderful things he did Um, the day before. Um, He established himself as the Messiah, yet they hated him for it and they did not want to accept him as God despite all the evidence he gave them. So I think there's a significant takeaway for us from this, right? Um, I mean, I don't know. The more I read this, and I remember even when we were going through the book of John, I just was like, how do these people not get this? How do they not get it? Why will they not get it? And um And I think the bottom line is this: despite any mountain of evidence, there are some that are flat out not going to believe. And despite all your best efforts of you're not you're not going to argue someone into the kingdom of heaven. You're not going to you know uh, through the best use of apologetics. And uh, you know I'm going to study all the apologetics books that I can, and I'm going to just I'm going to argue that guy into the into the kingdom of heaven. Um, These there's no more apologetics that you could get than someone working miracles right in front of your face, you know, and um, and these people just flat-out rejected it. And that's why I think it's so important. This, this verse just came to my mind yesterday. I just was like, um, you know the verse in Romans that says that one must confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And I think it comes down to this. I think it comes down to people not wanting to bow the knee to Jesus as Lord. I mean, it, 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 it takes humility, it takes submission to, to make someone else the Lord of your life, to, to admit that, like, you're the Lord and I'm not, because that has significant meaning if, if you're not the Lord of your life. It, it's, it's, it takes on a whole... New significance to your life if you're going to claim that someone else is the king, God the king of your life. So, at the beginning, I talked about how rather than looking for the promised Messiah through the prophets, we would look through the vantage point of Jesus and the disciples. So, um, what do we see throughout the New Testament? We see the disciples quoting Psalm 110 all the way through to prove the validity that Jesus is the promised Messiah. We're not going to look at all 33 quotes, but we're going to look at a few of them. So starting in the book of Acts, and this is, this is pretty amazing, right? This is Peter's first sermon, okay? He's, he's in J- Jerusalem. There's still a lot of pilgrims hanging around. And um, and, and Jesus says, uh, and Peter says this in Acts 2, 33 through 36, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, Psalm 110, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110, let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And I just, I think what is so amazing about this is that here's Peter using Psalm 110 in his first sermon to some of these same pilgrims that might have heard Jesus Quoting Psalm one ten, you know, uh, not not many days, you know, earlier, okay, and, and and now you know it's like, oh, I get it, I get it now, I get it. So that little baby in a manger was God, Emmanuel, God not only with us, but God come to us, and His name is Jesus because He came to deliver us from our sins. He is both our King and our Deliverer, and it all comes together in what we remember and celebrate at Christmas. So I want us to close by looking at what this precious gift of God, this precious Messiah given to us, means for us, um, again, through the, through the lens of Psalm 110. So we're going to look at just a couple passages here. Um, you can just write them down. I, I have them written down, so I'll just read them. But... Um, so what does this gift of God mean to us that we celebrate at Christmas time? Here's Hebrews 1:3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact talking about Jesus, and the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's Psalm 110 again. What a gift. Purification for our sins. Um, and the Greek word there for purification, it, it's it's this word that means expiation. And um, I heard, um, I'll just share this word picture. I stole it from someone I heard one time. It was a neat word picture. Um, that, And, and really, it, it explains kind of what this word expiation means. It's like... Um, they, they said that they had gotten like this new like white carpet for one of their rooms or something, and one of their kids spilled grape juice on it, okay? And they tried to get the grape juice up, and they were scrubbing and scrubbing and tried all kinds of cleaners. They could not get the grape juice clean. So what they had to do was they had to, they had to cut out where the grape juice was and order a piece of carpet um, of that same you know, fabric or whatever, and basically graft it in there, have the carpet people, they could graft in that piece of carpet, and now their white carpet was all together again. And that's really the picture of Jesus making purification for our sins. He didn't, he didn't scrub and scrub and wash them away. He basically cut out, and then, you know, here's my righteousness— you know he didn't he didn't scrub us till we were clean, it was it was like a carpet transplant, not a carpet cleaning. Okay, um, okay. Ephesians one eighteen through twenty one. This is Paul's prayer. This is in the middle of Paul's prayer. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? Psalm 110, again. If ever we needed to memorize a truth, memorize this verse, okay? Um, I know oftentimes when we're reading Ephesians, it's like, wow, Paul, just run on sentence. I mean, when, no periods, no punctuation. Uh, but if you catch one thing out of this verse, look, look at these words. Immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That word immeasurable, I mean, that means like it's you can't even measure it because it's so, it's so great. It's it's one, it's imme- I just love verses like this, right? I mean it's it's immeasurable greatness. I mean, great he could have just said greatness, but it's not just greatness, it's immeasurable greatness. Okay, of his power toward us, towards each one of you who believe. Um, do we need anything else for Christmas than that? I mean, that's an amazing gift. And then Romans 8, 31, 34 "'What then shall we say to these things? "'If God is for us, who can be against us? "'He who did not spare his own son "'but gave him up for us all.'" How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The Lord Jesus interceding for us. If you came here this morning feeling low, I hope you are beginning to experience some hope from these truths. Um, When I think of that word interceding, again, I was, like I said, I was listening to some worship music this week, and one of the songs had a, a line in it like this, even when our eyes don't see it, he knows what we need before we know we even need it. Okay? Even when our eyes don't see it, he knows what we need before we know we even need it. And so, having Jesus interceding for us, he's interceding for our needs that we don't even know we're gonna need. you know that that's an amazing gift um okay, almost done, promise see it stops right there at the beginning of that page um so i'm gonna i'm gonna go i just i gotta share this because this is. Incredible, it's from Psalm 110 again, and um, this will just take five minutes, um, and I know that you all are capable of going deep, so uh, if you, this, this one you'll have to like have your Bibles, have your, go back to Psalm 110, and then, and then also have your finger uh, at Hebrews, Hebrews seven This is this is just too too amazing to to pass up Okay Psalm one ten, we already know verse one says the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We already know the, how, where Jesus used that verse to share how he was Messiah, how David was, was talking about that Jesus was his God, was the Son of God. Um, then it says, verse 2, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And then verse 4, the Lord, again, the Lord, this is all capital. So this is Yahweh talking again. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, and I think he's still talking now about God the King, Jesus. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, now, Hebrews 7, okay? Um, I'm going to read, start in verse 11, okay? Now, if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. Again, because you, if you remember, the Levitical priests were under the line of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, not not Levi, you know, from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. You know, he didn't talk about priests coming from Judah. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, um, quoting Psalm 110. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, there's that song, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses, high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever." Isn't that awesome? I mean, it's just Psalm 110, and this writer of Hebrews <clears throat> connects the dots here about Jesus being this priest forever, and um, it's just amazing to me. And he is able to save to the uttermost, um, which, which, which means completely, entirely, um, And then lastly, the last verse is Hebrews 10. Okay, Hebrews 10 uh, 10 through 14. Uh, We'll read this quickly. It says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, why was Jesus able to sit down? Because his sacrifice was once for all. The priests in the Old Testament, they their work was never done. They couldn't sit down. There, I don't think there was a I don't think there was chairs in the inner area where they were doing their work because they kind of got in and got out, you know, and uh, their work was never done. But I, it's just amazing that it talks that he sat down at the right hand of the God because he did it once and his work was done. Um, That's the great story of Christmas. That's what the promised Messiah means to us. Um, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, God, I'm just amazed at, at your wisdom. I am just amazed at... Your story, God um I've heard that history is his story, and Lord, your story is so amazing it's it's a story like no other, and I'm just thankful that we um, can look at these. Uh, passages, um, as we focus on this time of year uh, to celebrate your coming into the world and what that means for us. Heavenly Father, may we just rejoice in these things um, that we have seen and learned this morning and and um and just ponder things, Lord, like your immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe, and think about that this week, Lord, when we're feeling low. Think about that, Lord, this week when we don't have answers and know that you have greatness beyond measure power toward us and um, unlimited power. Lord, I pray that we just be able to encourage one another even more during our discussion time. In Jesus' name, amen.